James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 as we can continue our series in James. So James chapter 1, 13 through 15. And probably the most famous verse of James is right there in James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we would say one of the trials that we face, part of the trials that we face are temptations. And so we're going to talk about how, what temptation is, how we resist as Christians, and how we can honor God through resisting temptation as that trial of temptation has its good effect in our life. So hear from God's Word, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit's power, speak to us in and through your word, that we together as your people might rightly reflect the kind of life you've called us to, and that we might have joy even in the face of of the trials and temptations we face. We pray it would be so in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I certainly went uh, through a lot of schooling to become what some might say, it depends on who you're talking to, an expert in biblical interpretation or God's Word. Again, depends on who you talk to. But you know what I'm really good at? And remember, it's not bragging if you can do it. I'm really good at my hidden talent is trapping armadillas. Yes, trapping armadillas is my hidden talent. And let me tell you, this talent came about, you know, there's both art and science to trapping armadillas. I was discipled by somebody in this church who will remain nameless, who taught me that the most important thing in trapping an armadillo is you have to get the right trap. So you buy this wooden trap, and it has doors on each side, and then it has a trigger in the middle, and the armadillo goes in, hits the trigger, and it shuts. Now, let me nuance this for my animal lovers. God made armadillos, and they are cute. And I will bring the next armadillo over that I trapped. Just let me know where to deliver them, and I will do that. But you know, they can cause a lot of damage. They can burrow under your house and sit under your foundation and all that. So, But the key to trapping an armadillo, having the right trap, and the right trap, you have to pay extra for this, is to buy the trap that is scented with armadillo dirt. So it comes full of dirt, and you got to be careful because you don't want to dump out this dirt. This is special dirt because it's really the bait for the armadillo to come into the trap because they're working more by uh, smell than by sight. And the key is once you trap the armadillo with armadillo dirt, you don't let them die in the trap because they could die in the trap, and if they die in the trap, it ruins the trap. So now you know everything about how to lure and entice armadillas. 
but it is also how Satan uses sin to lure and entice us through temptation that eventually leads to our, could be our physical death, could be our spiritual death, but certainly diminishes what's go, what God is doing in our soul. And if you look in verse 14, James uses this lured and enticed, that is hunting, fishing, trapping language that is used there. And you know how the devil works. He entices us to do that which is against God's will. He entices us and lures us to do that. And just like those armadillas, we get sucked in. Something looks good to us or smells good if you're an armadillo, but it is not what the reality represents. You see, temptation operates along the lines of co-opting something good in creation and then making that ultimate. And certainly several temptations are mentioned here in James. Remember the context here, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's in verse 2. And one of the trials is temptations. One of the trials that God allows in our life is to face temptation. Why would he do that? Verse 4 of James, James chapter 1, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is something spiritually accomplished when you resist temptation. You grow with God. You are humbled in remembering your own fallibility. It improves our walk with God when we resist temptation. We grow in holiness, which is a reflection of the glory of God. We grow in wisdom. Every time you do something stupid, either you do it or I do it, we grow in wisdom. Ah, better not do that again. We grow sober-minded about how temptation works, how the devil seeks to throw us off track. And so this is a passage about how we might resist temptation and stay steadfast in the face of the temptations that we will meet and encounter that these temptations would have a good spiritual effect on us because we're resisting them. And we learn how to resist temptation here in this passage. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this passage is still applicable to you because it shows us the consequences of giving into temptation. I mean, the reality is we live in a world that gives into temptation rather than resists it. And so if we give in to temptation, we see the consequences of where that leads. Verse 15, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And this could be the death, the consequences of making sinful decisions. It could be spiritual death as well. And so this is a passage that's relevant both to Christians and non-Christians alike. Well, how do we resist temptation? How are we not to give in to the lure and enticement of the world? And it could take many various forms. What's tempting for one person is not tempting to, to another. How do we resist? And what spiritual resources are available to us that we might live the Christian life and not go into the trap? Well, first, God tempts no one. And that's in verse 13, and really we have to apprehend something of the nature of God here and who He is 
as part of the resistance to temptation. Verse 13 tells us, let no one say when he, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. This is an important verse because it speaks to the very nature of God. He is not the author of evil. He allows temptation into our life, but he is not the author of temptation. And certainly, perhaps the most prominent tempted person in the Bible is Job. And you remember how that went. Uh, God asked Job, uh, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, let me tempt him. Let me touch his life. Let me take away some of the blessings that you blessed him with, and we'll see how he does. And you know how this story goes. And James uh, remarks about Job in James chapter 5, verse 11. He writes, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we remember how Job ends with everything being restored and then some. But do we remember that Job was tempted, even by his wife, curse God and die, she told him. And yet he was steadfast, enduring and faithful. And part of how Job endured and was steadfast is he knew something of the nature of God. That the nature of God is not to lead us astray. That, in fact, that's the devil who does that. But God tempts no one. God in his sovereignty and providence may allow temptation into our life, like he did with Job. And he allows that temptation that we might resist and grow from that, and that we might be, as I've said, verse 4, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, there is a lack in my life spiritually that is only addressed by facing and resisting temptation. And so God will at times allow temptation in our life that we might resist. Now, speaking of temptation, did you know there is something called hyperpalatable foods? And I have an example here for you. Now, you're already judging me. I did not purchase these flaming hot Cheetos. I did not purchase them. My family has a wild and woolly bingo game on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and so I won these fair and square. That's a long story. But did you know Flaming Hot Cheetos were manufactured and created to be what you call hyperpalatable? In other words, you can't resist them. If you have one of these Flaming Hot Cheetos, the only way you put out the fire is by having another one <laughs> and another one. And in fact, in one school district in Illinois, in one year, they sold 150,000 bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos. They sold so many bags of Cheetos, they said, we got to do something. Now, they weren't talking about the Cheeto dust and how you can leave the Cheeto dust. different. They weren't talking about that. But 150,000 bags of Cheetos, they said, we've got to do something we have to ban. Flaming Hot Cheetos from our school district. You're already plotting how you're going to get Flaming Hot Cheetos. You see how temptation, the lure and enticement. And so what they did was they did 
a very smart thing. They said, we're banning Flaming Hot Cheetos. We are not going to sell them in our school district. And that's a reminder to us, one of the easiest first defenses we have is to remove the temptation from ourselves. If a food is created that works on you neurologically to where you only want more of that food, then you probably shouldn't eat that food. You should remove the temptation from yourself. That's certainly one of the first ways to defend ourselves from temptation. Think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. He fled the situation. He fled out of there to resist temptation. So that's one way we resist temptation. But another way that is perhaps more powerful is to be so satisfied in our relationship with God, in other words, to be so full, and this is what the school district didn't think of. What didn't they think of? Well, you know, if school lunches weren't so bad, if school lunches weren't so bad, then maybe kids wouldn't buy so many bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos. No one thought of that. Let's serve the kids Better food, and if you think school lunches are good, I have a hobo stew recipe I'd like to share with you from a few sermons back. But you see the dynamic here. To be so full in our relationship with God that we are not tempted. That temptation doesn't hold sway over us. It's lost its appeal over us because we are spiritually satisfied with what God has given us in Christ. And you see, this verse speaks to that, verse 13, because it speaks to this relationship we have with God where he's not trying to trip us up, where he is not tempting us. It's a relationship where he loves us and he is present with us through Christ, and we are united to him by faith in the blessings Christ has secured are ours. What we have with Christ, in other words, is better than anything sin can give us. And that's part of how temptation operates, to lure us in, pretending that what we get with sin is better than what we have with Christ. But not so. So just like you probably don't go to the grocery store hungry, when we are full and satisfied in our relationship with a God who loves us with a covenant forever love, accepts us in Christ, so satisfied in that love and that relationship that sin loses its allure and appeal. Think of how Jesus defended himself there in Luke 4, verse 4, that you heard read earlier when he, after 40 days of fasting, is tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. And what, what's that an indication of? Not only is it the truth, Jesus defending himself with Deuteronomy as he is symbolically living out the 40 years of wilderness wanderings for the Israelites, but this time Jesus wins, this time the new Israelite wins. He defends himself based on his satisfaction in his relationship with the Heavenly Father. Man shall not live by bread alone. It won't be satisfying to me. Therefore, 
he is already satisfied in his relationship with Christ. If you look back at James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, it is this crown of life and this promise of better things spiritually that enable us to resist the temptations we have all around us. So God tempts no one is a statement of God's nature and His relationship to us and the spiritual satisfaction we have in Christ so we don't have to seek that satisfaction in a counterfeit way by giving in to temptation. So that's one way we resist temptation. Another way is we've got to recognize, verse 14, that we get tempted all by ourselves. If God doesn't tempt us, what's the problem? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, temptation works on the desire level, and the desire level is really at the intersection of our hearts. Sometimes desires are precognitive, and they come to us unbidden, suddenly. And that's where temptation operates, is on this desire level. Think back to Adam and Eve. Eve saw that the tree was good. She desired, and Satan used this against her, and our first parents fell from that perfect estate they were created in. And the problem is we have inherited their nature. We've inherited their nature, and their nature is broken. And even after faith and repentance, even after becoming a Christian, our desires are still influenced by that old nature, and our desires need to be sanctified, made holy. Our desires need to be changed. And we have to take responsibility for our desires. Understand, we're talking about how we live in a world that has gone off the rails, how we resist temptation. And part of that is understanding how our desires, the deepest things that we want, are shaped, are formed by ideas that are very subtle and Satan can be very crafty in influencing us towards that which will cause us to sin and that which will uh, dishonor God. And that's how sin operates, is on this desire level. Now, this year in April, it was an unfortunate anniversary. It was the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing and that act of Islamic terrorism. And there was a Texan, Rebecca Gregory, and she was standing at the finish line that day in April 2013. And she was standing at the finish line. She was watching one of her friends finish the marathon. And you know that, that the bombs went off. And she, fortunately, providentially, she was there with her five-year-old son and her five-year-old son was tired of standing, and so she took her five-year-old son and she placed the son on her feet, and the bomb goes off behind her, maybe, maybe 10 feet behind her, and the shrapnel comes out, and fortunately, her legs shielded her son. So her son survived this, and she had catastrophic 
injuries to her legs and in fact endured 76 surgeries and she still eventually she still lost one of her legs very brave very courageous person testified at the trial everything and she wrote a memoir she's a person of faith as best I can tell, and wrote a memoir about her experience. And she says something that's very important to us, uh, those of us who have been wronged, those of us who have experienced other people's sin. And she wrote this in her memoir. She says, and I'm quoting here, while we cannot predict what will happen to us, or if a bomb will go off at a marathon we are attending, I believe we can take comfort that God is in control. In the media, I'm often referred to as a victim of the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm not a victim. I refuse to see myself as a victim. I am a survivor. That's what she says. And she talks about in her memoir, really, how adopting this idea that she's a survivor instead of a victim enables her to be empowered to walk forward forgiving and in a God-honoring way. Forgiving something that is extremely difficult to forgive. And I bring that up to you because we really, we, we live in a world, we're a nation of victims. America has become a nation of victims. Now, I need to be sensitive and, and kind in understanding that there is something that happens to us. People can sin against us, and we are the victims. I'm not denying that at all. What I'm hopefully encouraging you with in telling her story is she didn't stop at being a victim. She chose to focus on surviving and moving forward. So this isn't a denial of victimhood. It's not a denial that people genuinely and harshly sin against us, and we may experience terrible things as a result. So it's not a denial of that category of being a victim. It's a denial of stopping there. It's an encouragement to move from victim to survivor. And the power of the gospel that enables us to move uh, this way towards surviving and the spiritual power which enables us to move in that direction. You see, the victim mentality dismisses my responsibility, and it also diminishes the power at work within us to do that which God requires. You see, if I say I'm a victim, and and this could be subtle ways, I could say, well, I never would have said that unless you said that first. That's victimhood, isn't it? See, I'm the victim of what you said, so therefore what I do is on you rather than taking responsibility for that. So that's one way people say that they're the victim is it's my behavior is motivated by what you did in your sin against me. Or we might have heard someone say, I was born this way. I was born this way. And that can take many forms. It can take a form of sexual sin or, or identifying as something other than what God has designed, and that's, that's sin. And we could say, I was born that way. Or I could say, 
I'm an angry person. You need to deal with it. That's a kind of victimhood. And what I'm getting at here is that Jesus took once and for all the place of being a victim so that we don't have to stay there. Jesus took that place of being the victim. In fact, we would say that cosmologically speaking, the only rightful victim in this universe in terms of a person who is perfect and completely innocent receiving that which they did not deserve happened at the cross. Jesus took on victimhood so that all the injuries we've endured and the sin that we have endured at the hands of others would not be the end of our story. Jesus took that on so that we together could go from that place of being a victim to moving to a place of being a survivor because Christ endured victimhood for us. Sometimes that victimhood is about dismissing my responsibility or diminishing the spiritual power at work within us. To say that I'm a victim is to say I'm not responsible and I'm helpless with what's happening around us. But we know that Jesus says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He gave us at conversion the Holy Spirit that we might resist temptation rather than give into it. James writes later in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil in what? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. We, through the power of the gospel, through what Christ has done for us, through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, armed with the two-edged sword of God's word, we, when we resist, the devil flees from us. So, so far, what I've shown you is God tempts no one. That's a statement about the nature of God and our relationship with him that enables us to resist because we know we're loved and satisfied in our relationship with Christ. I've shown you we get tempted all by ourselves how sin operates at this level of desire, luring and, luring and enticing us. And we can resist, but it's more difficult to resist if we claim this victim status. And then lastly, I'll show you this terrible process that happens. It's in verse 15. And it stands as a warning to us that our soul is in peril. Our soul is in danger. Look at this in verse 15. Desire, it doesn't just stop there. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Those armadillos have babies, don't they? Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desires, which we typically may think, well, we're just born with this desire, even our desires must bow the knee to King Jesus. We live, I know I've seen Disney movies before, we live in a follow-your-heart world, right? That's the theme of every Disney movie, follow your heart. But the Scripture tells us it's not safe to follow your heart until it has been captured by the truth of the gospel and what He has done for us at the cross and at the empty tomb. 
It is only safe to follow your heart if our heart is for God and for what He wants more than what we want. Uh, Jesus says, and, and this is a very different way to live because in our world, the best way to live is portrayed as following what you want, doing what you want. But as believers, we understand we don't find life that way, doing what we want. We find life by doing what He wants. And in Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so we're called to be spiritually aware of what we want. And to bring that to God in both repentance and admission and honesty and vulnerability that he would shape and form that which we desire. And so my encouragement to you is to resist, to resist temptation, to pray about what you desire, to bring that to God, to, to pray in your moments of temptation knowing that God is with you, that He might shape and hone what you want, that what you want most might be what He wants. And we conquer and battle temptation not with our own strength, as you think about Rebecca Gregory, she is fast to credit her survival to ordinary people who became first responders that day, and she is fast to credit the doctors and nurses who took care of her, and she's fast to credit her friends and family who encouraged her in her lengthy recovery. Likewise, we have this community here to encourage each other in our moments of temptation, that we might walk with each other. You see, Rebecca Gregory, her story is not one of grit and bootstrapping. Her story is one of a community rallying around people and encouraging people. And so we conquer and battle temptation, not with our own strength, but with the strength that God provides, especially our relationship with Him. And then the last thing, as we resist temptation, we are called to long for Jesus. We are called to long for better days. We are called to long for days when the traps, the lures, the enticements of this world will hold no sway in our life. We are called to long for those better days, better days than anything this world can provide. And so we're called then as Christians to be steadfast in the face of temptation and to resist with the strength that the gospel provides for us. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that you would help us to resist the temptations that we face. And Lord, sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves, or we might neglect the very means of grace that you've called us to employ and avail ourselves to that we might be strengthened spiritually. We ask that you would make us steadfast in the face of temptation, empowered by your grace and the reality of the empty tomb. Would your Holy Spirit so work in us that we together would live lives that honor and glorify you as we resist temptation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.